Welcome back to episode two of the Kindred Spirits Book Club. This is the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by Reagan Duffy. And this week, we're going to do a review of the major plot points of Anne of Green Gables. Originally, we planned to do the whole book in one episode, but there is so much to talk about, and it's hard to condense. So today, we're just going to talk about the first half of the first book. So Kelly, to get started, what is our Anne quote of the week? Okay, I love this quote and it tells us so much about Anne. She says, I've always imagined that my name was Cordelia. At least I always have of late years. When I was young, I used to imagine it was Geraldine, but I like Cordelia better now. But if you call me Anne, please call me Anne spelled with an E. What difference does it make how it's spelled? Asked Marilla with another rusty smile as she picked up the teapot. Oh, it makes such a difference. It looks so much nicer. When you hear a name pronounced, can't you always see it in your mind just as if it was printed out? I can. An A-N-N looks dreadful, but A-N-N-E looks so much more distinguished. If you'll only call me Anne spelled with an E, I shall try to reconcile myself to not being called Cordelia. I love that quote, and it really makes me think about the importance of names and how we relate to our own names. Um, so I have to ask Reagan, did you always like your name? Do you like your name? Did you ever want to be called something different as a kid? What was your Cordelia? Well, so for me, I kind of had the opposite problem from Anne. I love my name. It's already unusual to begin with. At least it was when I was growing up. And it's spelled differently than either of the two more common ways you see Reagan, because it's a family name. So it's my grandmother's maiden name. And because she was an only child, no one inherited it as a last name. So my parents gave it to me, the firstborn grandchild, as a first name. And I love that part of it. And I always have. But I was very sensitive and I really did not like being teased. I hated that other people mispronounced it. I definitely hated that because Ronald Reagan, who was elected when I was in kindergarten, ruined Reagan as a name for me. I got called Ronald and I got called Prez and I got called Nancy a lot. And none of it, I'm sure, was malicious, but I was not having it. It really, really, really bothered me. So I felt very burdened by my name. I hated having to explain to teachers at the beginning of the school year how my name was pronounced. I hated people misspelling it. So I definitely, as I've gotten older, like that doesn't bother me anymore. And I love my name. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be called almost anything other than Reagan. It was kind of a shame, actually, that I Nancy Reagan ruined it for me because I loved Nancy. I was a super Nancy Drew geek. So oh, I totally. love Nancy as a name. Like when my sister and I were playing, I often pick Nancy as my uh, pretend name. But honestly, most of the time, I wanted to be anything that was easy to spell and easy to pronounce and nobody would notice. Now I kind of love the fact that nobody has the same name as me. And I love the fact that it's unique and interesting and a good conversation piece. But when I was a kid, absolutely not. <laughs> and because like I've come around about it, uh, as I said, a lot. But when I was pregnant, one of 
my major criteria for my daughter was I wanted her to have a name that was recognizable and easy to spell. Her name is Alice. I wanted one that was not too common. Like I didn't want her to be the Jennifer of her class and go through life being Jennifer D um, or Alice D in her to distinguish her from everybody else. But I wanted it to be one where when people saw it, they're like, oh, Alice. Yeah, that's a name that we know. Yeah. You just look at it once. You're not worried about how to pronounce it. Yeah, exactly. And it has a beautiful literary connotation. Which I also loved. I also loved. (laughs) How about you, Cal? Well, like you as a kid, I really did not care for my name. I, and I think one thing that's kind of interesting that we have in common is that we both um, had very well-meaning mothers who picked out our names with a lot of care and thought and could have no way of knowing that like 80s and 90s pop cultural figures would come along to ruin their daughter's beautiful names. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, Kelly, the connotations were kind of that airhead character portrayed. Oh, Saved by the Bell. Kelly. Oh, I was thinking Married with Children, but yes, yeah, Saved by the Bell too. Oh, yeah. Right? So you have Kelly... Kelly Bundy, Kelly Kapowski. It was always sort of like the airhead, beautiful cheerleader. And I was not that. I was like the bookish kid and the theater nerd. There was nothing like popular or cheerleadery about me. And I really felt this like deep disconnect between sort of the pop cultural sense of my name and my sense of myself. And I think what my mother was trying to do is she was trying to give me a beautiful name with a nod to our Irish family heritage. She was really thoughtful about wanting to give me a unisex name. So that way I would feel free to kind of express my femininity in whatever way made sense to me, which I appreciate so much as an adult. Um, But unfortunately, along came Kelly Bundy. And, you know, that's what I heard mostly growing up. And then even as an adult, I've struggled with it a little bit because I think it lacks gravitas. Mm. Um, It is a very like lighthearted, fun name. And I'm a pretty serious person with a serious job. And I think that there's a part of me that wishes that it was something a little bit more traditional or a little heavier or just had like a few more syllables even. So I definitely relate to Anne and I understand that sense of being able to learn a lot about a person by their name. And I think what's really funny about Anne and her struggle with her name is that she's not a Cordelia, right? Like what's your concept of a Cordelia, right? A Cordelia is someone who's very like fussy and fine and that's not Anne at all. Rufru. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so in a way, I think her name kind of suits her perfectly and maybe ours do as well, Reagan. And, you know, we're just still figuring that out. Exactly. Well, maybe our moms can form a support group for mothers of children who don't appreciate their names. Yeah, I think uh, I do should. now, but I think when I was in middle school, my mom could have been president of that club. Oh no. I told my mom to call me Victoria for all of seventh and eighth grades. I would like put that on my school papers and everything. I was that kid for sure. I did have an epic fight with my mom probably when I was, yeah, seventh grade about not only what did I have this burden of a first name, my middle name is also a family name that doesn't work well as a first name either. So I couldn't even go by my middle name and why Mm -hmm. would she have burdened me? I remember her saying, she's like, Reagan, when you were born, the idea that Ronald Reagan would ever be president was nothing more than a bad joke. We honestly did not see that one coming. Yeah. I mean, he was a movie star, right? That was what he was known for. She was like, I thought at worst 
you'd get some King Lear jokes. Oh, wow. Deep cut, mom. (laughs) But I will say your mom has a unique name too. So she definitely was not going to, she wasn't going to shy away from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, as I said, I'm really glad I have it now. And I do love that it's unique, but you know, when you're Anne's age, 11 or 12, I think that's peak. My name is not who I am. It's peak identity, right? Really trying to probably for the first time in your life, figuring out who you are. Your name is a huge part of that. It's the first thing that people hear about you. And it also speaks a lot about your relationship with your parents and, you know, the thoughtfulness that they put into how they named you and the kind of girl that they wanted you to be. And knowing that Anne's connection to her parents is so tenuous, you can see why she places this huge importance on her name. Let's get on with our plot overview of Anne of Green Gables. Because this book is written in an episodic style, I found it really hard to break it down to a brief plot overview because each episode has its own beginning, middle, and end. But we will do our best not to get too deep in the weeds with the details and leave those for further exploration down the road. Okay, so I'm going to kick us off with the first four chapters, and this will essentially comprise of Anne's arrival. So we start the story not from Anne's perspective, but from the view of Mrs. Rachel Lind, who is the town busybody of Avonlea on Prince Edward Island in Canada. So she notices her neighbor, Matthew Cuthbert, wearing his suit, and he's driving away from the house at an unusual time. She's intrigued, but most importantly, she's bothered because she doesn't know why this is. So she hurries over to Green Gables to speak with Matthew's spinster sister, Marilla Cuthbert, and to get the dirt on what all is happening. Marilla, of course, is not surprised to see Rachel and explains that he's going to the train station to pick up the orphan they have sent for. She says that the farm work is getting to be a bit too much for Matthew to run on his own. And when they heard that another family in Avonlea were getting an orphan from an orphanage in Nova Scotia, they sent word that they would also like a young boy, 11 or 12 years old, to help out on the farm. She figures that a boy of that age would be young enough that they could help teach him and influence him, but old enough to meaningfully help out when he's not in school. Mrs. Lind is absolutely horrified by this, and she shares all these terrible stories of orphans that have killed their adoptive families. She's also horrified that Marilla did not see fit to consult with her on the plan. My favorite part about Mrs. Lind during this whole thing is that she's equally horrified by these two things. She's sharing stories about an orphan who put strychnine in the well, and then also conveying to Marilla that she cannot believe how Marilla did not consult with her. How could you do this without talking to me? And I think it's such a beautiful characterization of not just Mrs. Lind, but also of Marilla and the two women's friendship with each other, right? Because it really shows that they're not just neighbors, but they have in a sense been friends for many decades. And yeah, they kind of don't do things without talking to each other about it. So Mrs. Lind is very shocked here. So while all that is happening in Marilla's uh kitchen at Green Gables, Matthew is arriving at the train station and he finds out that instead of the boy that they were anticipating, there is a young girl waiting for him. She has red hair, a shabby dress, and she is carrying a big worn carpet bag. Anne Shirley immediately overwhelms Matthew with her chatter and he can't really get a word in edgewise, but that's not a problem for him because he also can't bear to tell her the truth. And so he just brings her home to Green Gables. And on the drive home, that's where we first really get to know Anne. She talks nonstop 
full of fanciful thoughts and forthright observations about the world around her. Matthew is as taciturn and shy as he is, is charmed by her. And Anne is quickly at ease with Matthew. He's a good listener and she's a good talker. They're a good match in that way. As they're driving back to Green Gables, she renames all of the prosaic landmarks along the way, and she is struck dumb by the beauty of the blossoming apple trees. I think when we read this scene, Reagan and I were talking about how long uh, she was struck dumb when she saw the blossoming apple trees on what she renamed the White Way of Delight, and we figured out it was like 20 minutes, right? Because we were yes. trying to figure out the length of the avenue and then how fast they were going in their horse-drawn carriage. And we did the math and we were like, oh, so she went from talking nonstop and absolute blue streak probably for hours to like 20 minutes of full-blown silence. And um, it's just beautiful because Matthew is so confused by what's happening at that moment. And then when Anne finally lets you into how she's just sucked up the, that beauty of driving through the white way of delight. It's such a lovely picture of who she is. And a glimpse into her worldview, right? She is the kind of person who is struck dumb when she's put in the face of beauty. She's never not going to notice something beautiful in front of her, whether it's a tree or a body of water or a dress. She notices and appreciates beauty and beauty is important to Anne. So By the end of this ride, you immediately know who Anne is. She's bright. She's imaginative. She seeks beauty and poetry everywhere, and she yearns to connect to others. And it's not hard to see why Matthew likes her. So Matthew and Anne arrive back at Green Gables, where Marilla is pretty surprised by Anne's arrival. Right off the bat, Marilla, ever practical, is blunt and not particularly warm with Anne but she's not unkind. It's more of a, what a fine kettle of fish. What are we going to do about this mix up? She says, Anne will have to go back as she's not what they wanted. Anne is crushed. Although she doesn't let that stop her from asking Marilla if they can call her Cordelia instead of Anne. As Anne goes to bed, Matthew tells Marilla that he wants to keep Anne, but Marilla doesn't think it's practical. She says that she doesn't need the company or the help and Matthew does. So the next day, Anne wakes up feeling better because the beauty of Green Gables just works that magic on her. And Marilla drives Anne over to Mrs. Spencer's house. Mrs. Spencer is the lady who had brought Anne with her from the orphanage. On the way to Mrs. Spencer's, Anne tells us all about her past. She tells us that her parents died of fever when she was just a baby. She had no other living relations. And the housekeeper, Mrs. Thomas, was the only person who volunteered to keep Anne. She kept Anne till she was about eight years old, mostly so that Anne could help her with her own children just as soon as she was old enough. When Anne was eight, Mr. Thomas died and Mrs. Thomas couldn't afford to keep Anne anymore. So Anne went to live with a neighbor, Mrs. Hammond, who needed help with her children. We find out later, three sets of twins Mrs. Hammond has. So she takes Anne. Anne lives with the Hammonds for two years, basically as unpaid help until Mr. Hammond died. This is so wild to me that like, she's just sort of being like passed around as like, as you say, unpaid help, like, you know, an unpaid babysitter. And she's a child herself. What is she actually doing to help these women raise their children? Exactly. At the point that she goes to live with Mr. and Mrs. Hammond, she is eight years old, helping to raise three sets of twins who are younger than her. 
when Mr. Hammond died, the Hammonds can no longer afford to keep Anne. So she ends up in the orphanage at Hopetown in Nova Scotia. She has been there for this past year until Mrs. Spencer took her to Avonlea for the Cuthbert. One of my favorite things is you can hear Anne's innate goodness because Marilla asks if Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond were kind to her. She kind of hedges that she's sure they meant to be good and kind to her. And that counts for something. So you can read between the lines that Anne's childhood was not full of love and understanding up to this point, but Anne doesn't come out and say it. She has been trained to feel grateful that anybody did Took anything her in. for her. Yeah. I think that this also gives us an interesting way to look at Marilla too. Marilla's also reading between the lines. And so she's seeing that here's a child who has been, you know, used essentially And she also wants to know, has Anne been abused? Has she suffered physically at the hands of these women? She doesn't have to ask if she suffered emotionally. I think Marilla knows what's going on. She's a practical woman and she understands what's happening here. And she asks Anne, you know, as directly as you can in a book like this, you know, were these women kind to you? And when Anne hedges, I mean, I think that tells Marilla everything she needs to know. And something starts to happen then in Marilla's heart where she's realizing that here's this sweet and sensitive child who just literally has never known any kindness. Mrs. Spencer and Marilla start discussing what to do with Anne and the neighbor, Mrs. Blewett arrives and Mrs. Blewett had just been asking to get an orphan of her own. I want to know, is Mrs. Spencer like an orphan pimp? Like what is the deal with Mrs. Spencer just procuring orphans? What is the deal with just procuring orphans as unpaid labor anyway? Was this something that was commonly done at the time? Like if you needed like domestic help, did you just go like get a kid? This whole thing is wild to me in retrospect. I think when you're reading the book, especially as you and I read it in childhood, we just sort of said like, oh, okay, this is how it was. But now looking back on it as adults, like, I'm sorry, what was happening over there? Not only that, you find out the miscommunication happened because- Marilla didn't talk to Mrs. Spencer directly. She talked to Mrs. Spencer's relative, who she had heard from. Oh, and that's how right. It's like this happened. convoluted game of telephone. Yeah. She's like um, mentioning offhand to some lady at church or whatever. Oh, by the way, can your sister pick me up an orphan? Like, what is happening? This is this whole thing is bonkers. So Mrs. Blewett shows up and how providential and could just go to Mrs. Blewett. You can see the instant Mrs. Blewett walks in that she is not kind at all and that life with her would be more misery for Anne. Mrs. Blewett has a fractious baby that she is desperate to have help with and immediately tells Anne that she would be expected to work very hard. Marilla sees this and you can see her soften. So she waffles, oh, she and Matthew hadn't for sure decided not to keep Anne. And she really does need to talk it over with Matthew. So she needs some time to think about it. She'll be taking Anne back with her to Green Gables. Anne knows what this means for her. And are you sure, Marilla, are you going to keep me? Marilla tells Anne not to get her hopes up, but she does say she's willing to give this experiment a try. She starts that very night with teaching Anne to say her prayers and Anne's clear neglect in the spiritual realm convinces Marilla that it's her duty to adopt Anne. During these two chapters, we already start to get a glimpse of the Anne and Marilla dynamic. Anne is full of fancies and romantic ideas. Marilla is practical and down to earth, but underneath that, she has an open and loving heart. 
I think Marilla is such an interesting character because she says to Matthew quite dismissively, oh, I wouldn't give a dog I like to that blue woman, you know, which is a really memorable quote, but also like Anne's not a dog. She's a child. Marilla is softer than she will ever let on. Absolutely. I cannot wait until we dive into an episode all about Marilla. So about two weeks after Anne arrives, there is the absolutely iconic head-to-head meeting of two strong and outspoken women, Mrs. Lynde and Anne. In the time between when Anne has arrived and this scene, Mrs. Lynde has been homesick. She's been dying to come over to meet Anne. Finally, she's well enough. She's over. She's having tea in the kitchen with Marilla. And all of a sudden, Anne comes barreling in from where she's been thoroughly enjoying herself, exploring the meadows and the orchards surrounding Green Gables. And if we didn't already have a good grasp on Mrs. Lynde from the first chapter, the writing here couldn't illuminate her any more clearly. Mrs. Lynde was one of those delightful and popular people who pride themselves on speaking their mind without fear or favor. (laughs) Does that not tell you something? Yeah, I mean, definitely the kind of woman that Mrs. Lynde is, right? I love that she's, I love that Montgomery says that Mrs. Lynde is both delightful and popular for being like a tell it like it is kind of person. It's like, okay, well, Mrs. Lynde thinks that she's delightful and popular for being a tell it like it is lady. (laughs) Delightful (laughs) until she tells it like it is to you. Exactly right. So Mrs. Lynde launches right into critiquing Anne, critiquing her looks to Marilla as if Anne isn't even there. Like she literally is just, you know, talking about her to Marilla as if she was talking about a pet. Mrs. Lynde calls Anne skinny and homely and freckled. And worst of all, she hones right in on Anne's biggest sore spot and calls her hair as red as carrots. Anne responds in anger as she should. She yells that Mrs. Lynn shouldn't have said such things to her. And she asked Mrs. Lynn how she would like it if Anne said that she was fat and clumsy and had no imagination. Anne explains that Mrs. Lynn has hurt her feelings worse than they've ever been hurt before. Marilla sends Anne to her room. And here we also get to see more of Marilla's character. She's ashamed of Anne's temper and Anne's blowout. And she knows that Anne misbehaved. But she also explains to Mrs. Lynn that she was too hard on Anne, and she defends Anne and explains that she was never properly brought up. Marilla expects a little bit more kindness and decency from her friend in this moment, and she's disappointed when she doesn't get it. It's absolutely shocking, actually, when you think about it, the way that Mrs. Lynn treats Anne in that moment yeah you don't say like Anne's a vulnerable child how do you think it's okay to just look at a child and say right in front of her face oh she's terribly skinny and awfully homely no it really is this sort of carelessness that we see from time to time with Mrs. Lynn and again like the quote said she, she kind of prides herself on being blunt that's all well and good But we know from later on in the text that Mrs. Lynde isn't a cruel woman. But in this moment, there's something about the fact that Anne is an orphan or an outsider to Avonlea. Or, you know, maybe she's still upset that Marilla didn't talk to her about it. But something is keeping her from seeing Anne as a whole and developed person. And Anne is very right to put Mrs. Lynde in her place. So anyway, Mrs. Lynde sweeps out in a huff and Marilla ponders what to do next. She dismisses the idea of physical punishment, which is pretty enlightened of her for the time. And she talks to Anne and she tells Anne that she has to apologize to Mrs. Lynde, but she also acknowledges that Mrs. Lynde had been in the wrong as well. Anne refuses to apologize and Marilla responds that Anne must stay in her room until she does. In this 
exchange between them, we see that underneath all her sternness, Marilla is maybe even a little amused by the whole thing and maybe enjoyed seeing Mrs. Lynn dumbfounded and getting her comeuppance. Yeah, you get that sense that Anne is saying some things that maybe Marilla has thought once or twice in her life. Oh, absolutely. And Marilla and Mrs. Lynn are old friends, so I'm sure they's, they've seen all sorts of things, but it seems like Marilla is the type to just sort of bite her tongue and cluck in private and to have someone just out and out say exactly what she's been thinking probably felt pretty cathartic. I bet. We see Anne's stubbornness here as the next day she continues to refuse to apologize and she won't eat any of the food that Marilla had brought up to her. And we also start to know Matthew more. He sneaks upstairs to talk to Anne despite telling Marilla that he would stay out of her child rearing. He encourages Anne to smooth it over for his sake because he misses her. And ultimately, Anne is willing to bend her pride for Matthew. She tells Marilla she's ready to apologize. And while Marilla is glad to hear that, she is a bit suspicious by Anne's positively upbeat spirit on the way to Mrs. Lynde. This is actually such a funny scene. You know, they're walking over to Mrs. Lynde's house and Anne is like almost skipping in excitement to get over there. And Marilla is thinking to herself, this is not how this should go, but she's not experienced enough with Anne personally or as a, as a parent generally to know what is coming up next. It's one of those things that she thinks that Anne should be remorseful or ashamed as she's walking or dreading getting, you know, having to apologize to her considering everything that went before. And so she's a little perplexed by Anne's cheerful spirit on the way over. Once they're at Mrs. Lind, uh, Anne gives a dramatic and over-the-top apology on bended knee, and she even uses words that Mrs. Lind had used against her in pleading for forgiveness. Marilla recognizes that Anne is actually enjoying the drama of this moment, but Mrs. Lind loves it. She loves the apology. She feels very gratified by Anne's apparently sincere apology, and she does a quick about face. She forgives Anne and Mrs. Lynde apologizes to Anne in her own way and admits that she stepped out of line. We start to see that show of humanity from Mrs. Lynde there. Yes. Mrs. Lynde even gives Anne the best compliment she could have given her. Hope that one day Anne's hair will darken into Auburn as she grows up. Now in the next chapter, we see that Anne is doing her best to live up to her promises to Marilla to be good, to mind her temper. Even though the new dresses Marilla has made for her are much plainer than Anne's romantic aesthetic desires. So the first kind of public outing for Anne is she is sent to Sunday school. Marilla has a headache, so cannot accompany her to church her first time. Anne takes this opportunity on a sunny day on her way to church to gather all sorts of wildflowers, decorate her plain straw hat and her dress with just a riot of wildflowers. She goes to church. Everybody is kind of giggling at her. She goes to Sunday school and none of the other little girls befriend her or make any initiative at all towards her. So Anne gets back and she's quite lonely. She doesn't realize that she's been made fun of, but she is, she does feel very lonely. This does filter back to Marilla, who is a little embarrassed because what will people think of her? She's worried that people will think she decked Anne out like that and sent her to church, but she can recognize that Anne needs to meet 
other kids her age. And so she arranges to take Anne to meet Diana Berry, who lives at the next farm over and is just her age. At the suggestion of meeting another little girl her age, Anne is in raptures. She just immediately hopes that Diana will be her bosom friend. Diana is described as a beautiful and cheerful girl who always laughed before she spoke. Isn't that lovely? Yes. Oh, I love Diana. And I know. And she takes to Anne very quickly. She is a little bemused by her. And Diana says that she's really delighted to have a friend who lives close enough to play. Anne is obviously going to be a very exciting friend to have. In the next chapter, Anne is invited to the Sunday school picnic and she is over the moon in anticipation. She can't stop talking about the picnic, meeting the other kids, and potentially her first taste of ice cream. There is this amazing page of writing here, and it's an unbroken block of text about a page and a half as Anne talks nonstop to Marilla about all of the games that she and Diana are playing and all of the expectations she has of the picnic. Marilla is supportive of the picnic. She says she'll bake Anne a basket of treats to bring to the picnic, and Anne spends the next week happily dreaming about this picnic. She cannot stop talking about it. But then disaster strikes. Anne had been enraptured by Marilla's elegant amethyst brooch. Marilla specifically told her not to touch it, but she realizes it's not in its usual place. Anne admits when she is confronted that she did try it on in Marilla's room just to see how it looked, but had put it back immediately. Marilla does try hard to be fair. She searches her room thoroughly, but the brooch is undeniably missing. Anne continues to insist she absolutely never took it out of Marilla's room. Marilla determines that Anne must be lying to her and she sends her to her room until she confesses. She doesn't think that Anne stole it. She thinks that maybe she accidentally lost it and is now lying to protect herself, but she's more disappointed by the lying than the absence of the brooch. Anne continues to insist that she didn't take it. Marilla digs in and insists that Anne has to stay in her room until she confesses. Do you see Marilla like kind of bending over backwards to believe Anne? She's almost doubting herself. Like, was she wrong to take a chance on Anne? This is still very early in their relationship with each other. And even though things have been going more or less smoothly, Marilla sees this as a really grave transgression. Yes. And she had just had sort of the incident around Mrs. Lynde in which sending Anne to her room until she was ready to apologize had worked. So there's part of her that thinks this is the, this, this will work and will then confess and then we can smooth it over and we can go from there. I, I just need her to, to be honest. And the fact that Anne is continuing to insist that she did not take the brooch out of Marilla's room just is turning her heart harder. Yeah. So the problem is the picnic. Anne is like, I, I'll come right back to my room and stay in my room. Just let me go to the picnic. Nope. You can't go to the picnic until you confess. So Anne, the next morning, comes down and very serenely confesses, saying in her dramatic fashion that she had taken the brooch to wear to play with Diana, and she accidentally dropped it in the Lake of Shining Waters or Barry's Pond. (laughs) Marilla is furious, not just that the brooch was lost, but that Anne seems to be showing no remorse, especially after Marilla has had just all of this internal stress. And, but Anne says she just wants to get her, her, hurry up and get her punishment over with so she can go to the picnic today. Nope, 
Marilla decides that obviously the punishment is no picnic. Anne is distraught. Anne is heartbroken. She runs up to her room crying profusely. And now this is so sad for Anne too, because now Anne feels betrayed. She understood what was supposed to happen here because she had done it previously with Mrs. Lind. And from Marilla's point of view, it feels very much like Anne is apologizing in his extremely perfunctory manner. She doesn't seem to be showing any remorse. It feels very surface to her. Later that after in that in that afternoon, Marilla goes to mend her lace shawl and finds the brooch caught in the lace at the bottom of the shawl. She figures that what must have happened was she, as she laid the shawl on her dresser, the brooch had caught in it. And then when she put the shawl away, she hadn't realized that the brooch had caught in the lace. She goes to Anne and tells her what happened and asks her why on earth she confessed to losing the brooch. Anne says, well, Marilla didn't believe her when she said she didn't take it. And since she wouldn't be allowed to go to the picnic until she confessed, she made up the very best confession that she could. And it was, in fact, quite a spectacular confession. So you can see here what had happened. And to her credit, Marilla realizes her misstep here. She apologizes for not believing her. She admits that she was wrong. And she says, there's still enough time for you to go to the picnic. And she has Anne hurry to get ready and sends her off with a basket of, of treats. And Anne has a glorious, in fact, a scrumptious time at the mm-hmm. picnic. Okay. So the next couple chapters we're going to talk about are maybe the most, like when you think about Anne, you have like a visual representation of Anne, maybe the most iconic chapters in the whole book. Anne starts school and the first three weeks are great. She is behind the other kids her age due to her spotty education up to this point, but she makes friends with the other girls and she's pretty popular right away. My sense is that Anne was probably like a wildly charismatic child. Anne doesn't think too much of the schoolmaster, a sort of dour man named Mr. Phillips, but she does love to learn. Then Gilbert Blythe returns to school. He's older than her by a few years, 14 to the 11 or 12 of Anne, but he will be in her same grade level because similarly, he's missed several years of school due to his father's ill health. Diana relays to Anne that she thinks he is very handsome and smart, but he loves to tease. At school, Gilbert tries to get Anne to notice him, and it's kind of a novelty for him because he has to work for a girl's attention. So anyway, Gilbert's trying to get Anne to notice him. She's daydreaming out the window, and so he reaches over to grab a braid, and then he calls her carrots. So now we see... (laughs) Big mistake. Big mistake, Gilbert. Not the right thing. And if we remember how she responded to Mrs. Lind, saying that her hair was as red as carrots, once more, her temper roars forth, and she jumps up yelling at him, and then crack and brings her slate down across his head, and she breaks the slate in two. Gilbert offers that it was his fault for teasing her. He tries to take the blame, very very gallantly, really. But Anne is still punished, and Mr. Phillips writes on on the board in front of the whole class, Anne, without the E, how dare he, Anne Shirley has a very bad temper, and then he makes Anne stand underneath it all day. Anne, of course, is, you know, she's a sensitive kid. And so this humiliates her. And she shields herself in her pride. And she refuses Gilbert's apology after school. 
Any chance of a reconciliation is spoiled when Anne is unjustly punished by Mr. Phillips the next day, who makes her sit with Gilbert for the rest of the day. Her pride is so hurt that she vows never to return again. Marilla lets her learn at home after hearing from Mrs. Lynde what a terrible teacher Mr. Phillips is, and Anne continues to ignore Gilbert whenever she runs across him. I had so much respect for Marilla reading about how she handled this. And it's also a moment that I was realizing when I was going back to read it, I respect Mrs. Lynde more because Mrs. Lynde is the one who says, don't force her. She'll go back to school when she's ready. And that he's a terrible teacher. Like she's not missing anything. Yeah. It turns out that Mr. Phillips only got the job because of nepotism. So of course, nobody likes him very much. And he spends the whole time like, like making gross eyes at like this one girl. Yeah. The whole, the whole one room schoolhouse setup was not good. By now, Anne and Diana are deeply devoted friends, and Diana is keeping Anne up on all the gossip going on at the Avonlea school, even though Anne is still refusing to go. Marilla is going into town for the day, and she allows Anne to invite Diana over for tea. She leaves some instructions for Anne to make supper for Matthew and the hired boy, and she leaves some treats for the girls to have for tea, including some raspberry cordial to drink. We need to talk about what we think raspberry cordial is. Good question. I have always pictured raspberry cordial as kind of like a raspberry fruit punch sort of thing. Right? Like first, I think I thought of it as like maybe like a pureed raspberries, right? Mm -hmm. So like not quite the consistency of jam or jelly, but definitely like almost a saucy kind of consistency I don't know why I thought that I'm sure that's not right because it's something you drink okay I know where you got that where you know like some of those like candies with the cordial centers those are like and it's kind of like jellyish inside Mm -hmm. yeah or kind of like syrup thick sweet yes totally yes I'm sure that's where I got it from I thought right I think like raspberry syrup is I think what I thought raspberry cordial was as a kid and maybe the drink is more like you use a raspberry syrup and it's mixed with something to make it lighter Mm -hmm. like a concentrate yeah maybe that could be it I mean I could see it being something like really like a raspberry syrup with like a sparkling water being really lovely and refreshing for us, but I don't yes. think that Marilla had like LaCroix stocked in her, uh, her fridge. No, I don't think she did too bad. So the girls have a fine time wearing their second best dresses and pretending to be rather grown up, having grown up chit chat in the parlor. They're and- asking each other, like how it was the weather today and all of this, like exactly. they didn't just like see each other earlier that day. <laughs> I think Diana asks about how the potato crop is coming in. Oh, it's so funny. It's like, is this what you guys think adults talk about? Okay, sidebar. I don't know if I told you this, but I'm going to share this story here. Uh, Just before Easter, my daughter, Alice, who is nine, she and her friend wanted to host a Easter brunch for their friends. And I had immediate flashbacks to this scene. Oh, that's so funny. Wait, what were the things that they felt they needed for their Easter brunch? What was their raspberry cordial? That's what I need to know. Okay, here's how it started. In class, they were doing some activity where their technology teacher was showing them how to make spreadsheets, and he was using party planning as an example. So they came home with a party planning spreadsheet 
in their mind. Oh, can Alice share her sp- her party planning spreadsheet with me? I think I could use that. Possibly so. So that's, I think the spreadsheet started it. Like how grown up is that? So they hop on, they hop on Zoom to plan this with each other, open Amazon and start making, uh, they look for matching paper plates and napkins. Oh my goodness. They They're decide, they show me, spree. they show me a cart by the way, with $75 worth of stuff. Stop. No, they and I didn't. was like, where do you have this money? Alice blows out her allowance jar. And she's like, well, I have, she saved quite a bit of money. She's like, Juliet has 20 bucks. I have like 50. And I was like, no, you cannot spend $50 on this. No, no. I'm going to show you how like, we have perfectly nice plates. You That's do not exactly. need to I'm buy party sh- plates. I'm going to show you how to find, they wanted to have both like brunch with French toast and a lemon cake and ice cream. Okay. So we did talk about like, it should really be one or the other. I was like, come on, Alice, you've had brunch with us before. Like, does anybody have room for cake after brunch? No. Well, Alice always has room for cake. So I'm not even sure if that worked for her. (laughs) But they did. They did this lovely party. They split up. They had fruit salad and French toast and sticky buns and orange juice and strawberry lemonade. And they used their own money to buy candy to hide in Easter eggs that they hid around the yard. This is so great. How enterprising. They bought flowers. We bought, we, I took them after school to buy flowers at Trader Joe's. And Did they, Alice wear her second best dress? She had me make her a skirt. That's wonderful. Yes. And a top with matching lace and the, all the girls, they invited uh, five friends. I think only four could come, but they had a lovely they had a lovely party in the backyard eating French toast, which they all declared was the best and finding Easter eggs and running around. And it was so cute. That is so cute. I love that they just like totally took the idea and ran with it. Um, but here's my most important question. Did any of them inadvertently get drunk? No. And we are coming to that <laughs> way to bring us back. So Anne finds the raspberry cordial She leaves it with Diana because she has, she's very busy bustling around keeping house. In her absence, Diana kind of chugs down three large glasses of cordial saying, oh, it's much better than Mrs. Lynn's or anybody else's that she's ever had. Uh, And Anne is telling her a very long story about how a mouse drowned in the pudding sauce. She forgot to tell Marilla about it until they were all about to have their pudding and then had to shout, don't eat the pudding. But then. All of a sudden, Diana feels very ill and is dizzy, and she clumsily rushes home, even as Anne is protesting, to let her help her or to stay longer. It turns out that Anne has accidentally given Diana Marilla's homemade currant wine instead of raspberry cordial, because she has had neither before. Diana's mother is furious. She swears that Anne did it on purpose, even though Anne tries her very best to explain. Marilla gets home and she discovers where the mistake has been made. She had told Anne the wrong place to look for the raspberry cordial and they had, it had not been labeled. So she even tries to explain it to Mrs. Barry and Mrs. Barry will not hear it. She refuses to forgive Anne and she forbids Diana from playing with her. It's so sad. The girls meet in secret to exchange vows to be friends forever. And they, Anne asked to have a lock of Diana's hair. Terribly romantic. It is. And they are just devastated. This does 
have the side effect of sparking Anne to go back to school. So at least she can see Diana at school, but she can no longer sit with her. And truly, like Diana won't even talk to her at school, although they do pass a few notes professing their undying friendship. Anne channels all of her energy into her schoolwork. And this is where her academic rivalry with Gilbert begins to take shape as they continue to push each other to take top honors every week. I can't. It seems like what Mrs. Barry is doing here and separating the girls is like so cruel and so severe. But could you imagine your child coming home from a party drunk? Yeah. I mean, be- it's, oh, it's kind of like a reasonable response under the circumstances. And not only that, right? Like, right? Like this child is 11 or 12. And yes. this is at a time in which Marilla even says many people are down on her for making current wine to begin with. Like this is temperance. Yes, this is temperance. And Marilla even says like, oh yeah, the pastor said it was okay to have a little bit of current wine for medical emergencies, right? This is, you know, no one is drinking for fun at this time. So yeah, it was definitely seen not just as like dangerous, right? It's unquestionably dangerous for a young child to be drunk, but also like very immoral. Yes, yes. And I think that's Mrs. Barry's, biggest concern is what will people think of Diana? And mm-hmm. it's so much easier to blame this orphan that nobody knows anything about who, or who her parents were. And so that is, that is where she puts the blame that it must, it, Diana could not possibly have done anything wrong, which she really didn't except for being a, a little greedy with the cordial. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where Mrs. Barry is really coming from. It makes the stakes all the higher when you think about, well, what is Anne going to have to do to win back Mrs. Barry's trust and to win back Diana's friendship? And fortunately, we don't have to wait too long. So at this point in the book, Anne has just returned to school after the Raspberry Cordial incident in October. Now it's January and there's like some kind of a political event in Charlottetown, which is 30 miles from Avonlea. And most of the local adults are away at this event. They're seeing like someone speak. Is it the prime minister? It's the premier. Is the premiere. Okay. And this is kind of an interesting glimpse into like the politics of the region. So yes, they're all going to hear him speak kind of on either side. It says that most of the adults are voters (laughs) of the premier, right? They are in the, Mm -hmm. they vote for the premier's party. Mrs. Lind is not, but feels like, oh, she hates him. But she has to go see him anyway, probably just to criticize him. Yes. No major thing can take place without Mrs. Lind. So anyway, all the Avonlea adults are away from town. And Anne, meanwhile, is by herself and enjoying a cozy evening of keeping house for Matthew and studying by the fire. And then all of a sudden, Diana comes by. She is gasping in terror because her three-year-old sister, Minnie Mae, is terribly sick. Minnie Mae has croup and neither Diana nor young Mary Jo, who I guess is like their nanny or some sort of maid, um, who's watching the girls while the parents are at the rally, know what to do to help her. Matthew goes to fetch the doctor and Anne springs into action. This is a really nice moment between Matthew and Anne where they just kind of make eye contact and Matthew goes right to the doctor and goes for some medicine and it's like they're a well-oiled machine. So Anne goes and grabs a bottle of Ipecac, and she is confident from her experience caring for all of Mrs. Hammond's three sets of twins that this is will be what helps her treat Minnie Mae. Anne then spends all night tending to Minnie Mae. She's dosing her regularly with the Ipecac, which helps, I guess, release some of the phlegm and helps it come up so she can cough it out and also keeping Minnie Mae comfortable and warm. 
She's also doing things like shouting orders at Mary Jo. <laughs> yes. And I do love it. She just takes charge of the situation and is confident and level-headed. Yes. Good in a crisis. I mean, these yes. are like fabulous qualities, um, especially in such a young kid. And she just, yeah, she takes it. She takes over the scene. Finally, Matthew arrives back at 3 a.m. with a doctor. He had to go several towns over to find one who wasn't already at the rally. According to the doctor, Anne had saved Minnie Mae. Otherwise, it might have been too late by the time that he had gotten there. The doctor is deeply impressed by Anne's presence of mind. Matthew takes Anne home. She sleeps until the afternoon. And when she wakes up, Marilla tells her that Mrs. Barry had been by to thank Anne and to say that she had been wrong to keep her and Diana apart and that all had been forgiven. Anne, of course, is over the moon. And immediately she and Diana pick up right where they left off. So now if you're wondering, croup is a respiratory infection. It occurs usually in children and it's often caused by diphtheria or influenza viruses. Kids who have it have like a sharp cough and severe croup could often be fatal before more modern treatments because the child or the baby could choke on the, all the phlegm building up in their bodies. So Anne's actions truly were life-saving. Nowadays, we have vaccines against diphtheria and influenza, so it's much rarer. So at this point, having saved Minnie Mae, Anne and Diana's friendship is flourishing. And by February for Diana's birthday, Anne is invited to stay at the night with Diana and go to a big debating club concert in Newbridge. Mrs. Berry tells Anne and Diana that they would even get to sleep in the spare room. And this is an honor that Anne is very impressed with. Anne and Diana are so excited that they get to sleep in the spare room. And then, of course, Marilla says that Anne can't go. Marilla thinks the concert is silly. She thinks that Anne is going to catch a cold by being out at night. So Anne, of course, is very sad, and she appeals to Matthew. Matthew speaks up to Marilla and says that Anne should go. It's pretty rare for Matthew to express any kind of opinion on Anne's bringing up. He had told Marilla that he would keep his oar out of it. So when he does speak up, Marilla listens. So it's actually interesting. Anne doesn't appeal to Matthew in the sense of going to him. She accepts what Marilla says. She's sad and upset about it, but goes, you know, goes off to her room. Matthew speaks up on his own and that's even more remarkable. Oh, so he notices. He notices and he's the one who speaks up and says, I think we should let her go. And he doesn't let it go either. He brings it up again because Marilla says, now you promised me to stay out of it. And he says, well, I can have an opinion. And he brings it up again the next day, which is extremely unusual for him. And this is the thing, like as quiet and sort of unassuming as Matthew is, he's paying attention and he's noticing when something is really important to Anne and he's soft hearted. He doesn't want her to have too many disappointments in her life. And Anne is worth speaking up for, I think for Mm -hmm. Matthew, I think you get the Mm -hmm. sense that he just, if he doesn't have a really, really good reason he doesn't take that chance. And so I think it's remarkable that Anne is a really, really good reason to him. Marilla does relent. And of course, Anne is elated. This type of concert was not about musical abilities. It's more about dramatic recitations, which by the way, I think we should bring back. That sounds like so much fun. (laughs) Um, And it's right up Anne's alley, of course, right? She of the grandiose apologies is going to love a night of dramatic recitations. The girls get home very late. They get dressed in their nightgowns. And then, you know, because young girls will be young girls, they decide to race down the hall to the spare room and jump on the bed together. This is, of course, Anne's idea. 
Then they are surprised the moment they pounce to find that Diana's elderly aunt, Josephine Barry, was asleep in the bed. She had arrived for, for an unexpected visit from Charlottetown while the girls were at the concert and no one had been awake to warn them. Miss Barry was not amused by this interruption and reports filter back to Anne later that next day that Miss Barry was so angry that she wasn't going to fund Diana's music lessons as she had earlier intended. Anne goes to seek her out and she pleads dramatically with her to forgive Diana. Remember, Anne is quite good at this at this point. Probably not a little inspired by the night of dramatic recitations too. (laughs) Maybe so. Anne's eloquence and her spirit quickly charm Miss Barry, who Anne finds out is a kindred spirit after all. In fact, Miss Barry decides to stay longer at the Berries to get to know that Anne girl, who she says amuses her. I love this so much. I love that Miss Barry just she thinks Anne is really funny, right? Like she sees the humor in it. And this Barry is a little bit of an, uh, of a reader stand in here. She's seeing what we're seeing that as sort of over the top as Anne is like, there is this sort of like kernel of humor at the heart of all of it. You realize by this point in the book, halfway through, Anne has charmed three kind of set in their ways older ladies yes she has really done a number on you know these kind of middle-aged older women who are you know the pillars of the community who people are like low-key afraid of especially in the case of miss barry and Anne just has the way of sort of weaseling in yeah and i don't think she even realizes how she's able to do this Some of the apologies may be calculated, but it's not the calculation that brings people in. It's the whimsy. It's the spirit. It's the excitement. Anne is different and different is exciting. Exactly right. The same way the little girls at the school were excited by someone who could tell wild, amazing stories and come up with really fun games. You know, the women of the town or the women who come across Anne are likewise really charmed and enchanted by her being somewhat of an unusual kid and by having this sort of over-the-top spirit about her. Well, at this point, we're halfway through the book. So why don't we wind up the Anne recap here? There is so much more good stuff to come. But for now, why don't we transition onto our new ongoing segment, Inspired by Anne. This week, what do you have that's inspired by Anne, Kelly? Tea. Tea. <laughs> so actually, Reagan got me for my birthday an Anne of Green Gables tea. And this is by a company called Novelties. Novelties, like novel T T E A, Novelties. And it's very, very cute. So my full review is it comes in a very cute little sort of craft paper brown bag with a beautiful illustration of Anne on the front with a book in her lap and her straw hat and she's leaning against an oak tree and she's got a cup of tea in her hands. Right before we started the podcast, I brewed myself a cup of this tea so that way I could enjoy it while we were recording. The tea is a green tea and the notes are listed as orange peel and raspberry. And I will say that right off the top, I definitely could smell the orange peel. So it was a, like a nice sort of like mm. citrusy aroma to yeah. balance out some of the sort of like grassiness of the green tea. And then the raspberry, I think it was like ra- like dried raspberry pieces. And that lended like a really lovely sort of tart sweetness to it as well. So overall, I thought it was a total hit. 
definitely check out uh, novel teas for more literary inspired teas like this one. I thought it was great. Does it taste like you think Anne of Green Gables should taste in a tea? Ooh, I kind of do think so. I love that it was a green tea because I think that really connects you to Anne's love of the outdoors. It makes you think of like fresh cut grass, all the beautiful green growing things in her life. And then of course, I mean, the raspberry pieces, like that's just iconic Anne. So all in all, it was a lovely cup. And thank you so much, my friend. You are welcome. I am glad you're enjoying it. Next time I'm over, you will have to make a cup for me. I will. So I am going to share for our Inspired by Anne section, a really lovely young reader's book called Anne Arrives. It's inspired by Anne of Green Gables. It was adapted by Callie George, pictures by Abigail Halpin. And it is really sweet. In fact, I bought this for Alice when she was younger. It uses some of the original dialogue from the book. It takes you through Anne's arrival through her blow up and reconciliation with Mrs. Lind. There's lovely illustrations in it. They're really beautiful. It does use a lot of the original dialogue and then it's got some simple text kind of connecting the basics of the story. If you have, let's say, a kindergartner or a first grader who's just starting to read on their own, this is a great way to introduce them to Anne of Green Gables. It's really lovely. And I see that it's now part of a series. There's Anne's Kindred Spirits about meeting Diana and the Amethyst Brooch incident, and School Days about going to school and Gilbert and the infamous Slate moment, and Anne's Tragical Tea Party. Anne's Tragical Tea Party. Sharing about the Raspberry Cordial affair. Oh my gosh, I love it. And the illustrations are really beautiful. And I also saw that this author has some really lovely picture books that are inspired by some of Anne's whimsical muse, uh, musings. So if you have an even younger child that you want to read some picture books to and share a little bit about Anne of Green Gables, that would also be a great place to start. So the author is Callie George, Callie with a K. Oh, I love that. I want to check those out. That is going to do it for us for this episode of Kindred Spirits Book Club. Join us next time for our Anne of Green Gables recap part two. Thanks so much. Bye.